Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 will be in verse 10 this morning. Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Uh, Stop me if you heard this. It's football season. Did you know that? I don't know, am I breaking any news to you right now? That it's football season? Football season is upon us? I don't think that that comes as news to you. As a football fan... Uh, I have been waiting for this day all summer. The day when football season would come. I've been waiting on that all summer. There's times when this football season is over, I start to get withdrawals, you know, start to oh, I feel it in my gut every once in a while, just really wanting to watch football. In the build-up to the football season, I like to watch those shows that are behind the scenes where they sort of pull back the curtain and you get to watch the practices and you get to hear the coaches talk and you get to do, you get to see how, what goes on at practice as they're gearing up for the season. They show all the coach speeches, you know, where they're standing before their team. Now, I've never played organized football. Never once have I played organized football. Backyard football, yes. Organized football, No. And I couldn't stand on the sidelines, I know, and call plays or anything like that. I don't know it like that. But I guarantee you I could give one of those coach speeches. I know I could. I have seen enough football that I know right now I could give one of those coach speeches. See, you just, you just pour in all the cliches that you've ever heard all into one paragraph. That's what you do. That is the goal of the coach speech. You just throw them all in. You know, you got to get out there and you got to give it 110%. You got to put it all on the line. You got to leave it all on the field. Don't take any back home with you. Leave it all on the field. Now, but we've got to take it one game at a time. And when we're out there, we've got to play the full 60 minutes. And for Pete's sake, take care of the football, right? It doesn't even matter what you say in between. Y'all are probably inspired right now. You want to go out and play some football, right? It doesn't matter if you're even speaking English in between. As long as you throw in all of those cliche phrases right there in the midst of the speech, people walk away and they go, wow, now that was motivational. I want to run through a brick wall for that coach. I want to do whatever he's asking. And there's one cliche phrase that you will hear Every football coach use. I've heard Nick Saban say it a thousand times. I've heard him say it once. Buy-in. That's the word. Buy-in. you got to get their buy-in. The players need to buy-in. Are the players bought in? They'll bring players, when they first recruit them, they'll bring them to Bryant-Denny. They'll probably do this all around the country. And the coaches will put them to win sprints. And they'll tell them how they want the sprints done. And they'll go down the field, and if they don't do them exactly the way the coaches have said, everybody's running another one. Eventually, all the players are just throwing up on the field everywhere, right? They're just just everywhere. And they're tired. The coaches, none of this is about getting in shape. None of it. All of it is about testing whether or not the players are bought in to the coach's voice. To understanding what he's saying and doing what he's saying. Frederick Nietzsche was quoted as saying, he who who has a why 
can bear any how. He who has a why can bear any how. In other words, if someone is bought in to the ultimate purpose behind what they're doing, then the how to get there, the grueling pain and agony that it's going to take to get there, they can endure. He who has a why can endure anyhow. Now, Frederick Nietzsche is hardly the bastion of Christian theology. He's one of the biggest atheists the world has ever known. But he's right on, on that point. The problem with Nietzsche or with any football coach is they can never give any why that can possibly endure for eternity. Every why they could ever give will ultimately terminate. It has an end. If you're bought into the processes of the football team, eventually you either graduate or you retire. So it doesn't matter whether you're bought in or not, eventually. If you buy into your company's strategy for client acquisition... At some point, either a new boss takes over, you quit and go to work for another company, you retire, or maybe even you die, and it doesn't matter anymore. The why that is not oriented towards eternity will ultimately terminate. It's ultimately meaningless. Last week, we saw in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus give us the why of our life. Why do we exist? Why are we here? Why am I doing this? And the answer was that the name of the Lord God would be hallowed. That is why you exist. To worship Him and to praise His name. That is your why. Why you exist to worship the Lord. Now, if our heart is set on that, then it also will frame our prayer life, which is what we're in the middle of right now, is the Lord's Prayer. So if our heart is set on the hallowing of the Lord's name, then not only does it frame our life, but it frames our prayer life, the things that we care about, the things that we want to see accomplished, the things that we pray for, how we pray for those things. It changes everything about the way we see the world around us. It changes literally everything if our heart is set to that why. In our text this morning, Jesus is going to teach us, continue to teach us, how to, how to pray. And, and in verse 10, he gives us the how. So we're going to look at our text. We'll read Matthew 6, 9 to 15, and then we'll focus on verse 10 this morning. He says, pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. As I said last week, we discussed... The first petition in the Lord's Prayer in verse 9 there, um, that the Lord's name be hallowed. And that this is the why of everything in our life. We live for the purpose of worshiping God. That purpose that, for which we were created. Now it doesn't matter if you're in here and you're a Christian or not. It doesn't matter if you're seeking or if you're completely atheist. You're set against the Lord. It doesn't matter. 
Your purpose is to worship God. If you are living and breathing, if you are alive right now, you were created for the purpose of worshiping God. Now, the entire Lord's Prayer is going to be connected back to this original petition in verse 9. The hallowing of the name of the Lord. The entire Lord's Prayer is going to be connected back to this original petition. So when we, even next week, when we get into asking the Lord for daily bread or, or, or forgiveness of sin or whatever it is that we're asking the Lord for, all of it is rooted in the original petition that the Lord's name be hallowed. So we're never going to leave that original petition, hallowed be your name. But now we encounter a second and third petition in the prayer of Jesus here in Once again, he is reorienting our hearts. He is showing us not only how to pray and what kinds of things to say and how to address the Lord and who we are. He's not only showing us those things, but he's telling us what our heart should be set on. How our heart should be set as we approach the Lord in prayer. And he says in verse 10, basically, that our desires must be for God's kingdom work to be finished. That our desires must be for God's kingdom work to be finished. I think this singular phrase at the beginning of verse 10, if you look down at your text, I think this singular phrase is what the entire book of Matthew is about. Your kingdom come. The reason that I've titled this study through Matthew, Kingdom Come, is because Jesus is going to spend so much time in the gospel preaching his message of the kingdom. So it's central to a study of the gospel of Matthew to understand what Jesus is saying in this petition, your kingdom come. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, he's not talking about a physical location, like a place where you go and you die, ushered into the presence of God, going to heaven. He's not talking about a physical location. He's talking about a reign. He's talking about a rule of God. In fact, you could, in most cases, substitute the word reign for the word kingdom. And you'd get essentially the meaning of what Jesus is asking for. If you think about this as the central message of Matthew's gospel, that God's reign would come, it helps to make sense of so much of the book, even up to this point that we are right now. For instance, when you go back to the first chapter in the book of Matthew, the opening passage, what do we have in chapter 1? We have a genealogy. A genealogy, in case you didn't know, is one of those things that most people just skip past, right? We're all guilty of that from time to time. We just read a couple of names that we don't understand, we don't know who they are, and we just skip to the end. Well, Matthew opens his book like that. Not the greatest attention getter, just got to say, if I'm critical of Matthew. Why does he open his book like that? Because right out of the gate, Matthew is declaring that this Jesus, who is going to be the central character in the book that I'm about to write for you, this this Jesus is in the line of David. And he is therefore suited to sit on David's throne. And that's important because what does every kingdom need? A king. If you don't have a king, you don't have a kingdom. And so Matthew opens his gospel 
with the king of this kingdom that he's going to eventually tell us about. But it's in the next passage that we find out some really crucial information, some characteristics about this king, facts that are really going to be important for us as we understand, as we begin to wrap our mind around the central character in this story. We find out that he's not only he's not born of a man, that he's born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. And he's literally God in human flesh. So this king is not merely human, but he's truly God and truly man. That's what Matthew means when he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's literally God in human flesh. He's truly God, truly man, right here before us. And then further, we find out that this kingdom that he's bringing... We find out a few more characteristics about it in the verse that precedes that, in verse 22 of chapter 1. What does he say about this kingdom? The angel says, He will save His people from their sins. So we have a king who has a right to a throne. Right from the outset, that central character of the story is chosen by God to accomplish this task. But in learning that he is truly God and truly man, we also learn that he is fit to accomplish this task. That he's not going to fail in trying to accomplish this task like all of his fathers have before this. Like even King David has failed. His, what he has set out to accomplish will not be thwarted. And then, in learning that he is coming to save his people from his sins, we also learn that this is no ordinary kingdom and no ordinary reign, but The kingdom that he's coming to bring, the reign that he's coming to bring, is a saving reign to his people. He's coming to redeem them. Now, when we're introduced to this king, Jesus, the main character of the story, there's one crucial bit of information that we don't have yet in the story. We don't get that until chapter 3, when John the Baptist is in the river baptizing And that question is, how does one enter this kingdom? How does one gain citizenship into this kingdom? And the answer that we get from 1 John the Baptist as he's baptizing is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance is the entrance to the kingdom. We also see Jesus pick this same story up in the next chapter, in chapter 4, verse 17. As he comes in, he's proclaiming the same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus is coming to save his people from their sins. And the content of his preaching is right there in the passage leading up to the Sermon on the Mount where we are right now. If you are to enter into my saving reign, you must confess your sins and turn from them. And later on he will say, and follow me. Now, in biblical talk, follow me is to believe in Jesus Christ and then emulate his character. So we have belief in Jesus Christ, emulation of his character, repentance and turning from our sins as the ways to enter into this kingdom. Then in chapter 5, he tells us more about this kingdom and what a person entering the kingdom looks like, what their character looks like. He says they're poor in spirit. This is a spiritual kingdom coming to give you spiritual salvation. They are poor in spirit, meaning they have no right, no claim to this kingdom. You don't have a right to belong here. It is simply by my grace that you're invited in. 
the person, the character of the person coming into the kingdom understands that, realizes that. He is a mourner. He mourns over his own sin. So he's spiritually impoverished. He mourns over his own sin. He's meek. He hungers and thirsts for righteousness and so on. We learn that in the Beatitudes, the character profile of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. But then we also learn that this character lives by a completely different code of conduct. The whole rest of chapter 5 is about this code of conduct, the conduct that is beyond, exceeds the righteousness of that of the scribes and Pharisees. So when it comes to this petition in Jesus' prayer, your kingdom come, if that's what the kingdom is, what are we asking the Lord to accomplish? What are we asking Him to do? It's a petition, please, Lord, let your kingdom come. That's another way of translating, let your kingdom come. What are we asking Him to do? Well, in some ways, the kingdom of God has already come. Meaning that God has already begun saving His people from their sins through Jesus Christ. Right? So in some ways, His kingdom has already come. We know that this kingdom has already begun to invade earth because even Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 12. The Pharisees are questioning Him as He's cast out demons and they're saying He's casting out demons by Satan Himself. And He says, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If it's by the Spirit of God that I'm casting out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Meaning it's here right now. It's standing in front of you. It is here right now. So he is, of course, doing the work that he's doing. Binding Satan, kicking out demons, doing all those kinds of things, saving people, relieving them from their oppression. He's, he's doing that, of course, by the Spirit of God. And so what he's saying to them is because I'm here doing this work, saving people, binding satanic authority, then the kingdom of God has come upon you already. It's here. Now further, since we know that this is the kingdom is God's saving reign, we also experience this now, don't we? In absence, in physical absence of Jesus. Jesus has died been crucified, buried, and rose again, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. But yet, even as He reigns from on high, we experience this same kind of saving reign. Paul tells us, therefore, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There's new creation language. He says in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But then in Colossians 1.13, which is the clincher, he says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So even after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, we understand that in some sense, the kingdom of heaven has already come because people are being saved. People are being ushered in to His saving reign. But in still other ways, God's kingdom has yet to come. If God's kingdom coming means that people are that God's people are coming under God's rule, then every single day we wake up is more people coming under that rule. So in that way, his kingdom has yet to come. 
But every day means that it's being added to daily, right? Uh, Peter tells us this in 2 Peter 3.15. He says, count the patience of the Lord as salvation. He's talking about the Lord's return. Count that patience. The longer he waits, in other words, the more people are coming under his reign. The more the sun continues to rise every single day, the more people are coming under the reign of Christ every single day. So we count the patience as salvation. But one day, there will be no more days. One day, there will be no more time. One day, there will be no more waiting. One day, all of us, in an instant, will be standing before the throne of God. And we'll have to give an account. Paul says in Acts 17.31, He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. There will be a day when there are no more opportunities and it's a day only God knows. So when it comes to this petition... In Jesus' prayer, what is it exactly that we're praying for? We're praying that that day comes. That our hearts are oriented toward that day. When God comes, when Jesus comes and makes all things right, our hearts in prayer are oriented, we long for, we yearn for that day. When Jesus comes to make all things right. And we pray with the Apostle John in Revelation. Come Lord Jesus. We desire that day. We long for that day. We pray that he comes quickly. Now remember we've said that, that Jesus is not merely teaching us the pattern of prayer. The words that we should pray. He's teaching us our heart's disposition in prayer. What should our heart be longing for? What should our priorities be? The previous petition gives us our ultimate priority. Verse 9 gives us our ultimate priority. The why of our life is given to us in verse 9. The hallowing of the name of the Lord. How is the name of the Lord ultimately going to be hallowed in all the world? When His kingdom comes. So if our why is that we want the name of the Lord to be hallowed, then we naturally would yearn for the day when He comes and the whole world hallows His name. Where every tribe and language and nation and tongue, where every knee bows before Him and every tongue confesses that He is Lord to the glory of the Father. That is what our hearts long for the most. And we're ultimately praying that it progresses until it fills the entire earth. You, you notice we're not praying for our best life now. You notice that? Where is the petition for Ferraris and bigger yachts? Where's the petition for luxuries, amenities? Cushion. Where's that petition? 
Where is it? I don't see it anywhere in the text. Daily bread? How can you turn that into Ferraris? We buy a lot of bread, I guess, for a Ferrari. We're not seeking to live our best life now. In fact, the entire orientation of our prayer is all directed Godward. We want your name to be hallowed. I want to live according to your will. I want your kingdom to come. I want everybody around me. I want my neighbor next door. I want my neighbor on the street next to me. I want my, the entire city of Tuscaloosa. I want the entire county. I want the state. I want the nation. I want the world to hallow your name. I want your kingdom to come and replace this junk. The orientation of our heart is all built Godward in prayer. You notice that? Diving further into the how, he says, our, heart, our desire must be to do God's will now. Second point, our desire must be to do God's will now. So Jesus makes this second petition there in verse 10. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So like the, the previous petition, we have another already and not yet. I mean, in some ways, God's will is always accomplished, right? I mean, in the very fact that in your Bible, you have in the last book, the book of Revelation, which tells you how it's all going to end, tells you that in some ways, everything's moving towards accomplishing his purpose, right? Wouldn't we have to say that? There's no possible way the book of Revelation does not come to pass? There's no possible way that the book of Revelation doesn't come to pass. And yet it's written for you even now that you may look at it and tell how it's all going to work towards His purposes, towards His will. Further, the fact that even the devil has to go to the Lord and ask for permission. We see that in the book of Job. He has to go to the Lord and ask for permission. We see that in Peter. Jesus tells him, the, Satan has asked to thresh you like wheat. He has to go and ask the Lord permission. The fact that he has to ask permission to do anything tells us that all things, even the things that we would consider that are bad, are being bent towards working for his will, toward his will. Scripture points us toward this conclusion as well. Isaiah 46 tells us, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Again, Isaiah 55, 11, the word of the Lord, uh, it, it tells us will not fail in its purpose. He says, So shall my word be that goes out of my mouth, out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Even the weather, we're told, accomplishes the purposes of the Lord. Job 37 points this out. By the breath of God, ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter His lightning. They turn around and around by His guidance to accomplish all that He commands them on the face of the habitable world. 
Paul tells us even that our own God-pleasing will and desires are accomplished by his working. In Philippians 2, he says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. To will and to work for his good pleasure. Even the slaughtering of Jesus was in accordance with the plan of God, as Peter tells us in Acts. He tells us in Acts uh, 2, in his first sermon there at Pentecost, 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So all of that is to say that in one sense, Scripture is clear that the will of the Lord is ultimately accomplished, but that raises the question, well, if that's the case, if the will of the Lord is accomplished, if all those Scriptures are true, then why are we praying that God's will be accomplished? Because in another sense, there is a sense in which the will of God is not accomplished. Paul tells us, in his letter to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 4, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Your sanctification, also translated your, your holiness. Paul, Paul points out that your holiness is God's will for you, and unholiness is not His will for you. So if you were sitting in my office in a counseling situation, I could with utmost confidence say to you that fornication or that sexual immorality, as is pointed out in Thessalonians, is not God's will for your life. So when you work unholiness, when you sin, it's safe to say that's not God's will for you. We see this in regards to the salvation of souls. In 1 Timothy 2, 3-4, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We know that not all people come to salvation. We know that not all of this is going to come to pass. The desires of the Lord. It's safe to say that the Lord desires people to be saved. He even tells us this in Ezekiel 18, 23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather he should turn from his way and live. Again, it's safe to conclude, since it's God's words, that he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So since both of these things are true, what are we actually praying for? That your will be done. We're praying that people come under the reign of God, the rule of God, that people will joyfully submit to His perfect and holy will as it is submitted to in heaven. We're praying that people come to salvation. We're praying that people come joyfully and are willing to give their entire lives to what He wants for their life. We're praying that His holy will would be obeyed now remember we said last week that our purpose is to worship God and then our secondary purpose, our secondary concern is what? Is to bring others into that worship. So this is what happens when they come into the right worship of the Lord. They live their lives to obey His will on earth as it is obeyed in heaven. This happens now. To be a part of God's kingdom now means that we are right now in this very place obeying the Lord's will now as it is done in heaven. That's what it means to have citizenship in the kingdom of heaven is that we are not only citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but I obey the will of the Lord now as I will do in eternity. 
That's what it means to be a citizen. And what we're praying for is that more people become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is our desire for others. But I want you to notice something. Do you see that this cannot be legislated? You cannot make a law that bends everyone to this level of morality. You can't do it. It doesn't matter what politician is in Washington. You cannot turn the country back to this. Period. It cannot happen. It cannot be legislated. This is not something that we can accomplish with law. No president has the ability to bring this about. I don't care what party they stand for. I don't care what principles they stand on. They cannot bring this about by legislation. This is something you cannot manufacture. To de a desire to do perfectly the will of the Lord, to revere Him and to hallow His name is what we desire. And we cannot bend people's will by force. The desire to do the will of God is a desire given to him by the Holy Spirit. So much of our time is spent thinking about God's will for our life. And we think about it in terms of events. I mentioned this last week. I'll reiterate it again this week. Our college students are back. And this is a time in your life where you're making tons of decisions. And God's will for your life is of central concern. Your thoughts are, what, Lord, what is your will for my life? I just want to do your will, Lord. What is your will for me? You've got decisions on what career to take, what major to, to take, what, what, maybe what person you want to marry. You've got tons of these decisions that are coming your way. And the qu central question is, Lord, what is your will for my life? We think of the Lord's will strictly in terms of events that will take place tomorrow. Lord, I want to do the event that you want me to do. I want to make the choice that you want me to make. The Lord is telling you already what his will for your life is. And he sent me here to tell it to you. This doesn't just go to college students. It goes for anybody. Are you ready? Holiness. That is his will for your life. To live a life of holiness. One of my favorite professors used to say, when faced with a decision, and neither one of them is sin, pick one, and that is the will of God. When faced with a decision, and neither one of them is sin, pick one, and that is the will of God. And what he's saying is this, so rarely does it ever happen that God opens up the clouds and declares to you what tomorrow will bring, and what decision you should make. And I would even say that on most occasions, when that has happened, most all of them have been recorded for us in Scripture. You've either been delivered by the hand of a prophet, by the mouth of a prophet, by God himself in some cases, by Jesus Christ, by his apostles, or by the very word that we have in front of us. Almost never do the clouds open up and for him to tell you, this is what tomorrow will bring. This is how to give you peace about tomorrow. Now, I'm not saying that you can't pray for peace with the decisions that you make. Of course you can. What I am saying is that the will of the Lord is best determined by hindsight. 
It's best seen in hindsight. When you look back and you go, yep, that was his will. Look at how he worked all those things together as only he could. Look at how he did all that. I didn't see that coming. I made a lot of foolish choices along the way. And look at how he weaved all those things together to bring me to this point today. And what makes you think he'll do it any different in the future? Of course he will. What is his will for your life to live a life of holiness? That's what his will for you is. So it's asinine to think, Lord, prepare me for tomorrow. Give me the clarity on the decision that I will make tomorrow, on those choices that I will make that are lifelong choices, when right now I'm making choices every day that compromise my integrity. They're spoiling a life of holiness. The whole time the Lord is saying, you're concerned about these events that haven't even come yet, that you don't even know will actually even come. And yet you're looking at that online. And yet you're using your mouth in that way, saying the things that you say. And yet you're gossiping and backbiting. And you seem not to be concerned about those things. My will for your life is to live a life of holiness. To be captured by a sense of His holiness. To desire that His name be hallowed around the world. How does that happen? It happens when we desire to live lives of holiness even now on earth as they would be lived in heaven. That's what we're praying for. That our lives and the lives of the people around us would be to live lives of holiness. And that goes for us as a church body as well. What kind of church body do we want to be? What does it mean to live lives of holiness as a church body? How could it not include a body that cares for one another? That genuinely loves his neighbor as he loves himself. Can we say that about everybody in this room? We're not even talking about the world around us yet, okay? Just everybody in the room. Can we even say that about everybody in the room? That I love everyone as I love myself? What does the Lord desire for us in holiness if we're really pray, praying that his kingdom come and his will be done? It's first got to start here in this room, doesn't it? Doesn't it have to start with me? Isn't that what it means for his kingdom to come? That I submit fully to his will and that I begin to live a life of holiness? That I begin to love my neighbor? Doesn't it mean that we become a church that cares for the poor? The downtrodden? The outcast? That desires to get our hands dirty and serving without our name being known? Without our business card being put forward? Without our logo being somewhere represented? But that we simply just want to serve you? Because Christ called us to? called us to care for our city. He called us to love the people around us. So that by all means, we may share the gospel with them. We may impart to them grace and mercy and peace and love from God the Father. Isn't that what we're trying to share? Doesn't it mean for our church that we become a church that boldly proclaims the gospel? Not just on Sunday, not just from the pulpit, but that Sunday through Saturday we're out in the community 
talking to people that are around us, imparting the gospel to them. Doesn't it mean that for us? If we're really earnestly praying for his kingdom to come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, shouldn't we begin seeing even now people coming and submitting to his reign? I think we should. I think it informs how we act as a body, as a church. Now these are three massive petitions. We'll cite them, we'll quote them, we'll, we, probably all of us know the Lord's Prayer by heart. But these are three massive petitions. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done. Three massive petitions. Because when we pray these things, we're not only asking that these things happen, we're adjusting our hearts to say, Lord, I want to be a part of that. Lord, turn my heart to do that. Lord, let it start with me. Let me hallow your name. Let me submit to my life in obedience and do your will as it's done in heaven. Lord, I want to be a part of it. I want to do this. I want your name to be hallowed. I want your kingdom to come. I want to do your will now even as it's done in heaven and I'm committing my life to doing it. But let's step back for a moment. And let's look at our hearts. And let's just think about some things that go on in our life on a regular basis. Are we really earnestly desiring that His kingdom come? Is that our foremost desire? Because we seem often far more concerned with what politicians are in office. We seem far more concerned with what's happening in Washington, D.C. We seem far more concerned about how America's kingdom is doing rather than God's kingdom. It seems to be the foremost concern of Christian evangelicals you even hear nowadays. Is what's going on in Washington? What's the political status of our, of our country? We seem far more concerned with America's kingdom than we do with God's kingdom. Far more concerned with whether or not this country is respecting our rights as Americans or they're disrespecting our freedoms than whether or not the Great Commission is being accomplished. And we're far quicker to curse the protesters than to weep over our own sin. Than to walk away and think, I am not living life here as it's lived in heaven. I can guarantee you that right now. But for some reason, I seem far more concerned with what everybody else is doing. Ask yourself if you care more about your neighbor's ballot or his soul. That's the difference. Do you care more about his ballot or his soul? Why has God saved you? Why are you here? The answer is you are here to hallow his name, to worship him, to revere him and honor his name, and to desire others to do the same. Now, how, how is that hallowing of his name seen? As people come under the saving reign of God, as people submit to King Jesus, and as I and my family commit to live lives of holiness and to see others submit to Jesus and lead their families in lives of holiness. As a church, 
and as individuals, our commitment to the hallowing of God's name is seen in our desire to extend grace and mercy from God through Jesus Christ that others too may may believe, may repent, and may turn to Him in faith and be saved and come under His reign. Friends, you were created for the glory of God to worship Him. But every single one of us has sinned and fallen short of that glory. We know that that's true. And we continue to sin. And we know that that's true. The gospel is the news that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, died for our sins and rose again, eternally triumphant over all his enemies, so that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, for those who believe. But there is only everlasting joy. That is the gospel that we are imparting to our neighbors. We are now hallowing. That's our why. But the question is, are you bought in? Are you bought in? Is that your why? Is that why you live right now is for that purpose? If it's not, the how doesn't matter. No how matters, actually, if that's not your why. Because all of it will eventually terminate and end at death. Could you imagine, on the other hand, what would happen if the kingdom of heaven actually invaded your neighbor's house? Let's say this is your why. Can you imagine what would happen as you sit there in your home and you look at your neighbor's house? Whatever your thoughts are of this person, could you imagine what would happen if the kingdom of heaven invaded his home? Can you imagine how their entire worldview would change? Now, if we're more concerned with what happens in Washington than our own holiness, that won't be our foremost concern. That won't be our foremost thought. If we're more concerned with what happens in Washington or wherever else than our own neighbor's soul, well, that won't be our concern. And if we think that new politicians, oh, we just get rid of all those and get in some new ones, that it's going to fix anything, then we seriously have a kingdom issue in our heart. If we can look at all those situations and not think it's sin. Sin is the problem. The fix is Jesus. That's it. There is no other fix. There is no plan B. There is no salvation outside of Christ. And when we see those things on TV, that's the only solution for those problems, is that. But if we can't watch that and understand that and think about that and prioritize that in our own life, then we have a serious kingdom divide in our hearts. What would happen if we began to engage our neighbors on those grounds? Where we're working towards those ends, coming into the kingdom of heaven, submitting his life to the rule and reign of God, and modeling the fact that I believe those things and how I live, letting him or her see the way that I live, 
in order to be about the hallowing of God's name, then we have to set our desires on, a cons- on the consummation of His kingdom, doing His will and proclaiming the gospel to those that we encounter. Making and maturing disciples for His glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how quickly we turn and find salvation in some other means. How quickly we turn to brash people as our saviors. How quickly we turn to people that promise change and all of these things as if it's really going to deliver something meaningful and long-lasting. How quickly we are to desert the gospel message. How quickly we are to engage our neighbors on grounds other than the gospel. Forgive us. We all struggle with kingdom issues. Being a part of the already and not yet. Living here knowing that we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And yet that your kingdom has not yet fully come as it will. It's tough. We pray for resilience. We pray for boldness. We pray that we'll see those things and know them for what they really are, false hope. That our only hope is that our neighbors, people inside our own households, friends, family members, repent of their sins and enter into your rule and your reign. That's our only hope. We confess that now. That's our only hope. Anything short of that will not suffice. So Lord, we turn to you as the only one who can do anything about this. The only one that can give us the boldness, the desire to seek after the benefit of our neighbor. Point him to the kingdom of heaven. The only one that can give us the desire to really get our hands dirty in ministry with people that we normally wouldn't come in contact with, maybe. To reach out with the love of Christ. Impart to them grace and truth. To lead them in the way of righteousness. May we be that as a church. In Jesus' name, amen.